Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to be treating a subject that uh, I'm sure is of interest to many. It's about uh, paranormal phenomena, paranormal phenomena. And I know this is generally outside the range of subjects that I usually talk about, but you know how it is here at uh, Fortress of the Mind. We are willing to take up any subject under the sun that has sufficient intellectual interest to stimulate and invite discussion. So that's what we're going to do. And you know, the immediate impetus for me to talk about this, I've been watching on Netflix in uh, some of my spare time here, a very interesting series uh, called um, Paranormal Survivor. Paranormal Survivor. It's a, I think it's a Canadian television series. And it's a whole series of uh, interviews and stories of real people in the real world who have had encounters with what they believe to be ghosts or spirits or demons or whatnot. And I also remember seeing a few years back, there was also a very interesting series. I think it aired on the Discovery Channel. It was called A Haunting a haunting. And it maybe it's in syndication now, maybe you can find it if you look, but I found these stories, these little documentary vignettes to be really interesting. I, I kind of like hearing these stories. I like to hear people's relation of their experiences with these things. And so, of course, the question always arises. The question always comes up. Is this real? Are ghosts, spirits real? Is paranormal phenomena real? Or are these things simply manifestations of overactive imaginations, uh, wounded psyches, projections of wishful thinking by viewers? And of course, every reader, every listener is going to have to decide for himself or herself. But for me, as I've seen these shows, and I've tried to investigate a little bit about this subject here, reading some books here and there, there's too much anecdotal evidence. There's just too much anecdotal evidence, documentary evidence, for this subject just to missed out hand as fraud, as fraudulent, as, as fake. There's something going on here. There's something here. And when you watch this series, if you do watch this series, this paranormal survivor or, or haunting, or I'm sure there are probably other TV shows about this sort of thing, when you listen to these uh, people who are being interviewed, these people look sincere. These are normal people. These are not uh, people who have, at least the way I see it, they're not people who have any axe to grind. They're not people who are looking for attention for its own sake. They're not people who really have any agenda. These are just normal people from all different walks of life, all different uh, professions, ethnic groups, races, geographical locations. And they are relating their stories. And you can't help but be moved in some ways by the sincerity of a lot of these people. And I, for me anyway, it, it really invites some philosophical reflection, which is something I'm always want to do. Because it the implications of this sort of thing, I think, because if it is really true, if it really that ghosts and spirits exist, which I think there is, I personally believe that there is something to that. There's just too much evidence for it not to be true. If this is really true, 
then we have to concede that the world is more than just the physical manifestation of what we can see in front of us with our senses. The world is more than just atoms moving through the void, as the Epicureans, the ancient Epicureans thought. These guys were materialists. I don't know if anyone uh, is familiar with the the philosophical school of thought of Epicurus, which you can find um, very expressed in great detail in Lucretius's poem De Rerum Natura, on the nature of things. And the Epicureans believed that nothing existed except material substance. Material substance. There were no gods, there were no spirits, there were nothing except our material universe. And that once a person died, that was it. That was the end. You were obliterated. And it appears to be that this is not entirely true. That this is not actually true. Now, of course, everyone is going to have their opinions on this sort of thing, and I don't expect to sway anyone by argument one way or another. But I really just want to invite you to reflect on this, because I think this is really important. Because the more I started to look at this subject, the more I realized that philosophers and theologians from ancient times up to the medieval period, up to the modern times, took it for granted that the spirit world existed. This was this is not something that's new. This is something that was taken for granted. I know from my own readings and my own studies that the mystical philosopher Plotinus of late antiquity, he, he took it for granted that the spirit world existed. He felt that that was a world that was simply part of the world soul. And it had just as much reality as the physical world. The same could be true with uh, the mystical philosophers in Islam, uh, chief among them Ibn al-Arabi, who thought, who, who developed a very, very complex, um, very, very complex architectural uh, system of thought to describe the world of images and the world of imagination. And, and to him, the world of spirits was just as real as the world that we see in front of us every day. And even in the late antiquity period, you know, there's a there's a passage here. There's a the late uh, Platonic philosopher, the late Neoplatonic philosopher Iamblichus, who wrote, uh, who was who was big into theurgy, theurgy, which was a, a branch of Neoplatonism that thought that uh, a practitioner could achieve union with the divine simply by performing certain rituals. Now, I don't I don't really subscribe to this type of thing, but What's interesting about it is these guys thought that the world of spirits, the world of non-corporeal images, were just as real as the physical world. And here's a passage that I'll read uh, in Iamblichus. And his book, his, his chief work was On the Mysteries, De Mysteries. And he says, After these considerations, let us also define the degrees of vividness of self-revelatory images. So then... In the case of the supernatural manifestations of the gods, their visions are seen more clearly, clearly than the truth itself, and they shine forth sharply and are revealed in brilliant differentiation. The images of the archangels are seen as true and perfect, whereas those of angels preserve the same form except that they are somewhat inferior in cognitive perfection. Obscure are the images of demons, and inferior in turn to these appear those of heroes. 
Of the archons, the images of the cosmic class are clear, but those of the material class are obscure, even though both are seen as a powerful authority. The images of souls in turn appear shadowy. Now this is a, a passage from Iamblichus's uh, On the Mysteries, Book 2, Section 4, and he's talking about the different manifestations of entities, what they look like. Now I know you're probably thinking, oh God, Quintus, you've gone off the deep end here, this is all nonsense, and maybe you're right, maybe it is all nonsense, maybe this is just a lot of delusion. But I don't think so, because there's something here, there's something to it. Now what I will say is the exact parameters of paranormal phenomena, I'm not really sure about. I don't know, I have not undertaken a, a detailed or extensive study of this subject, because I think there is a lot of, on the periphery of this subject, there probably is a lot of fraud, there probably is a lot of hucksterism, there probably is a lot of charlatanry. But those of us who have scientific dispositions, who are open-minded, who are willing to give ideas a fair hearing, owe it to ourselves to stay open-minded about this sort of subject. We can't just dismiss it out of hand. We can't just dismiss it out of hand. In fact, I'm almost certain that a good percentage of, of the people who end up listening to this podcast have probably had some sort of paranormal experience or another in one form or, or another. And you know, on this subject, I want to read an interesting passage that I think is relevant. And this is by the author Michael Crichton. You may have heard of him. He was the author of Jurassic Park and a lot of other of these scientific romances, these uh, uh, very popular in the 80s and 90s, died recently. But he was a big believer, a big practitioner of psychic phenomena, paranormal uh, phenomena. And his book, Travels, is very interesting. He talks about his travels in the physical world and also his experiences with paranormal phenomena. And this was a guy, who, again, he, this guy was not a charlatan. This guy was not a con artist. This was someone who had went to Harvard Medical School. This was someone who worked and lived in the real world, who had uh, real responsibilities, real jobs. This was not someone who was just an ego-tripping, um, self-aggrandizing fool. This was someone who had uh, legitimate credibility. And he firmly believed that paranormal phenomena were real. And he, at the end of his book, Travels, he talks about a talk that he gave to some skeptics at Caltech University in California. And I'm going to read some of the passages from this, uh, from this speech where he addresses some of the concerns that the, the scientifically minded might have about the paranormal world. You know, he addresses these uh, these concerns directly. He says, I began by saying that I didn't, want, didn't expect to change anyone's point of view by what I was going to say. It wasn't my intention to convince anyone of anything that night in Pasadena. I believed there was validity to certain psychic phenomena, and I knew most of my audience did not. Rather than dispute this in detail, I suggested we could all agree that history would eventually prove that either I was mistaken in my views or they were mistaken in theirs. We could all confidently look forward to the eventual resolution of this issue. Meanwhile, I wanted to tell this group some of the experiences that had led me to modify my own views and to try and explain how things looked to me now. 
Because, I suggested, the real issue as I saw it went far beyond the relatively narrow question of paranormal phenomena. It went to the basic intellectual posture of science in the latter 20th century. I then said, has anyone in this room had their tonsils and adenoids removed? Has anyone had a radical mastectomy for breast cancer? Has anyone been treated in an intensive care unit? Has anyone had coronary bypass surgery? Of course, many people had. I said, then you're all knowledgeable about superstitions because all of these procedures are examples of superstitious behavior. They are procedures carried out without scientific evidence that they produce any result. This society spends billions of dollars a year on superstitious medicine, and that is a problem and an expense far more important than astrology columns in daily newspapers, which are so vigorously attacked by the brain power of CSICOP. That's the name of the agency that he was uh, addressing. And I added, let's not be too quick to deny the power of superstition in our own lives. Which of us, having suffered a heart attack, would refuse to be treated in an intensive care unit just because such units are are, are of unproven value? We'd all take the ICU. We all do. I then went on to mention the many cases of fraud in research science. Isaac Newton may have fudged his data. Certainly Gregor Mendel, father of the Mendelian inheritance, did. The Italian mathematician Lazzarini faked an experiment to determine the value of pi, and his result went unquestioned for more than half a century. British psychologist Sir Cyril Burt invented not only his data, but research assistants to gather it. In more recent years, there were cases of fraud involving William T. Summerlin of Sloan Ketterling, Dr. John, Dr. John Long of the Harvard Medical School, and Dr. John Darcy of the Harvard Medical School. Other cases involved a research team at the, data, the, the Dana-Farer Cancer Institute, Dr. Robert Slutsky of the UCSD Medical School, Dr. Jeffrey Borer of Cornell University, Stephen Bruning of the University of Pittsburgh. Though most cases had come from medicine and biology, there were examples in other fields as well. Three papers in the Journal of the American Chemical Society were recently retracted in a case still under investigation. The extent of fraud was unknown, but I reminded the group that fraud undeniably exists in science. Thus, the fact that there are some fraudulent practitioners in the field cannot be an argument to dismiss that whole field of inquiry. Next, I reminded them that science as a field does not progress in a uniquely rational matter different from other fields of human endeavor, such as business or commerce. Max Planck, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics, said, A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. I reminded them of the tendency of scientists in every age to think that they finally know it all. For example, the French anatomist Baron Georges Cuvier, one of the most brilliant and influential scientists of his day, announced in 1812 that there is little hope of discovering new species of large quadrupeds. Unfortunately for Cuvier, this statement preceded the discovery of the Kodiak bear, the mountain gorilla, the okapi, the white-backed tapir, the Komodo dragon, Grant's gazelle, Grevy's zebra, the pygmy hippopotamus, and the giant panda, to name just a few large quadrupeds. Similar claims of nearly complete knowledge have been made by physicists in almost every generation, 
Such claims have been invariably proven wrong. I reminded them of the past failures of science to accept legitimate discoveries at the time they were made. When J.J. Thompson measured the mass and charge of the electron in 1899, many of his colleagues suspected him of fraud or ineptitude since he was famously clumsy around any experimental apparatus. When Carl Anderson of Caltech dis dismissed the new finding out of hand, um, and the theory of continental drift proposed by Alfred Wegener in 1922 should have been obvious to anyone who looked at a map of the world and saw how the continents could be fitted together. Yet it took 40 years for geologists to overcome the opposition of such eminent men as Harold Jeffries and Maurice Ewing to this theory. I reminded them also that the rate of progress in science was highly variable. Newton's theory of gravitation stood unchallenged for more than 200 years before the, the precession of the planet Mercury was found to disprove it. And conversely, hypnotism was a discredited practice for more than 200 years, ever since a blue-ribbon panel of scientists in Paris, including Benjamin Franklin and Lavoisier, had pronounced mesmerism, mesmerism without merit. Yet today hypnosis is unquestionably genuine and widely practiced. Thus, the rate of progress within a field is no indicator of the validity of that field. Next, I pointed out the trends and fads of science, which affected scientists at every level. It was perfectly acceptable for dozens of the world's most distinguished scientists to propose that our society engage in a costly search for extraterrestrial life, despite the fact that the study of extraterrestrial life is, in the words of in the words of the paleontologist George Gaylord Simpson, quote, a study without a subject. A belief in extraterrestrial life is a speculation indistinguishable from pure faith. Few, if any, of these great scientists would sign their names to a proposed study of psychic phenomena because the paranormal is not fashionable in the way extraterrestrials are. Yet there is arguably more evidence for psychic phenomena than there is for extraterrestrials. So these are the words of Michael Crichton from his book, Travels, which I've read for, and it, it, it appears at the end of, end of his book, as, actually as an appendix. And I think it's, it's important to keep these points in mind when we think about paranormal phenomena. If you're tempted to believe that all of this stuff is just pure nonsense, it's ridiculous, it's just charlatanry, it's just new age jibber-jabber, it's just bullshit, remember that all of us have prejudices. All of us have our own preconceptions. All of us, all of us, to some extent, are products of our environment, our conditioning, and that it's very, very difficult to overcome and to rise above these uh, conditioning uh, features. But we can do it with practice, and it starts by keeping an open mind. So that's what I really ask you to do. And it, it doesn't just apply just to paranormal phenomena. Keep an open mind about everything. Because when you can do that, you can help sift out truth from falsity in a much more comprehensive way because you won't be clouded by preconceptions. You won't be clouded by preconceptions. Because I think my personal view is that I, I think that there is more to the world. There is more out there than simply atoms and molecules and the four 
primary physical forces, the electromagnetism, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, gravitation. There's got to be more out there. There's just too much anecdotal evidence for it not to be true. And the exact parameters of that, I'm not really sure about. I don't know. I don't know what type of entities exist. I don't know what the parameters of, of this stuff is. I, I don't know. But there's more to the world than just meets the eye, than just meets our senses. There is something. There is some, there is some way that energy somehow is conserved in some way in the world. The life energies out there of things that we don't fully understand. So anyway, think about it, ponder it, and have fun with it. And if you like this sort of thing, if you're interested interested in this sort of thing, check out these uh, these uh, television programs, and you might find something uh, to uh, to think about. All right, enough for today. This is Quintus Curtius. Good night. <laughs>